they always say that the worst time to teach or preach at like a school or a conference or something is right after lunch. But we're going to redefine that. It's the worst time now is right after that big, beautiful breakfast. So if it starts getting a little warm and people start drifting off, I'll start waving my hands and, and maybe we'd get the temperature turned down a little bit. Um, I just want to go ahead and invite our children to Children's Church. If you want to go out the back door, your teacher will meet you. And uh, it's just an age-appropriate setting to, to look at the scriptures together. Um, so while they're going, I just want to make a quick announcement. Um, tonight, I'm going to be preaching at Revive AV. Um, you know, we give uh, Pastor Jeff an office here. Um, they have to move out of his facility they thought they were going to get, and so he asked me if I could preach for him, and I was, you know, sure. <laughs> Tell me not to preach. Uh, so I'm going to be over there at 4 o'clock tonight if you want to hear me again. If you just couldn't get enough of me speaking today, um, you can join us then. And then the th next week, they're going to join us. So Revive AV will be here with us because their service is at 4 o'clock, and on Super Bowl Sunday at 4 o'clock, they're going to have about three people in the service with them. <laughs> so they're just not even going to try to compete with the Super Bowl. And Jeff was saying it felt wrong to cancel the service for a sporting event, so I invited him to join us. So Jeff gets two weeks off. Um, he gets to hear me preach for two weeks. Um, but I just wanted to give you a heads up that we're going to be a little crowded next week. Um, which is a good thing. And then also they invited us to a Super Bowl party at their place. They're going to be over at the Seventh-day Adventist. They're going to have food. They're going to put the game up on a big you know, projector and everything. So we can go party with them and watch the Super Bowl after worshiping together. So just a uh, little heads up on some stuff that's coming up. Oh, yeah, I'm not going to preach this again. <laughs> he asked me to preach uh, um, Genesis 6. He's preaching through Genesis. I was like, hey, I did that. So the other day, I pulled my notes out and looked at them. I read through it last night. I went, hey, that's a pretty good sermon. <laughs> I can't wait to hear how this turns out. This is going to be interesting. So hopefully, uh, it'll be a blessing to them as well. Uh, let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, uh, singing your praises this morning was just so sweet to my heart to, to hear about a love that will not let us go, that you have fixed on us, and you will pursue us, and you will love us and make us lovely. Thank you, Lord, for caring so much about us in that way. And uh, Lord, I, I just pray that that would uh, um, be a source of strength and encouragement, uh, a focus for our faith, is to know, Lord, that we are loved, that God has fixed his, his attention, his, his desires on us. And um, that, that equips us even when, Lord, you're silent and uh, you seem far from us. Help us to remember who you are and, and how you care. And, Lord, I do want to pray again for our, our friends, Revive AV, and, and um, Lord, I pray that you would lead them to a, a permanent facility that would uh, suit their needs. Um, thank you for the place that they had picked out falling through because we know that wouldn't have been perfect for them, that you're leading them in the right way. And so, Lord, would you bless that congregation and build them up. Um, Lord, I pray that there would be many people who would come to know Jesus through their ministry. And so be with them uh, as, as they labor to... Uh, establish the church and build it up there and uh, and just multiply their ministry, we pray. And Lord, now as we open up your word and, and take a look at what Jesus has to say to us this morning from Luke, I pray that, Lord, your Holy Spirit would be softening our hearts and, and opening our ears and incline us to hear and to obey. And we ask this in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. So it's really, really appropriate. I, this was not planned. It didn't work out. It just worked out this way that what we're going to hear about in chapter 14 is a dinner party right after we sat down and ate together. 
It's like, you know, they warn you, don't pick too good of a sermon illustration. Because too good of a sermon illustration, that's the only thing people are going to remember. And boy, wasn't that the best sermon illustration? We get to sit down and eat. Actually, what we're going to look at is not a breakfast with Jesus. We're going to look at a dinner party with Jesus. And so he's going to teach us some etiquette about dinner parties. So we'll see the dinner party, and then we'll, we'll listen to Jesus tell us where to sit and who to invite. And, and that's kind of the outline for this. Um, so the way it starts is it starts with this Sabbath day. He went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees. And they were watching him carefully. So Jesus goes in, and he sits down to eat, and all the leadership is staring at him. And why is that? Well, we know why. We've seen this a couple of times. Jesus has this terrible propensity to heal people on the Sabbath, good heavens. And so they're watching him. They've got him scoped out, and they're keeping their eye on him. Well, he knows what's going on. And so he, he, said, he asked them a question. He proposes the question to them. Is it OK to heal on the Sabbath or not? Is it lawful? So he picks the fight, if you will. Now, at this point, you, I don't know about you, but when I was preparing the sermon, I was thinking, we're, we're doing the Sabbath again? We're doing the healing on the Sabbath again? Haven't we covered this? Well, we are, but we're not. It's not primarily about the Sabbath. And you can tell because of the way Jesus responds. This is primarily about something much more important than the Sabbath. So he, he looks to these, these folks and he asks them, is it OK to heal on the Sabbath? And they don't know what to say because they already know the answer. He's going to do it anyway, so no matter what we say, he's, you know. So Jesus looks, and there's a man with dropsy. Now, I always thought dropsy was something like um, epilepsy or something where you would drop to the ground. Actually, it's a condition that your limbs and your, your tissue inflames. It becomes really super saturated with water. The Greek word is actually hydropikos, and the hydro is just exactly what you would think, which is water. And so this man has this condition. It's very painful. Sometimes it can mean that you can't even walk. And doesn't it figure that our dear doctor, Dr. Luke, would be the one that introduces this with the technical term for it? He's diagnosed it um, just by talking about it. But the man has dropsy. He has this inflammation of his tissues. Um, and, and Jesus looks to him, and he calls him forward. He, he brings him up. It says that, um, that he took him. And the word there for took him is he, he didn't just like call him up and say, come over here. He, he held him. He, he grasped him. He pulled him in. And he healed him. And then he sent him on his way. It sounds like he went, OK, now go away. <laughs> that's, that's really kind of a, not a great way to translate it. What, is he, what he did is he, he called the man up. He held him. He healed him. And then he released him. So it's more of a releasing. Go back. Go about your way. It was a very kind and a loving thing he did. And so this is the, the response that he gets. Is he, he responds to the lawyers. Um, and he says to them, which of you, having a son or an ox that's fallen in a well on a Sabbath day, will not immediately pull him out? And they could not reply. So here's why this is different than just, is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? What he's talking about here is he said, I just healed a human being on the Sabbath, and you're upset about that. If your son falls in the well and you, on a Sabbath, you would go fish him out, right? So is your son more important to you than this man? Oh, wait, it's even worse. If your ox falls in the well, you'd go fish him out. Is your ox more important than this man? Is that fair? And they, they couldn't answer him because they knew the law. They understood that there was this loophole for, pulling, you know, for helping animals or somebody who's hurt. And yet they still couldn't resolve in their mind this idea that it was OK for Jesus to heal on the Sabbath. So that's the dinner party. That's the situation that's set up. Now, 
we're going to hang on to that story for a moment because as we move through the next two portions, uh, where to sit and who to invite, we'll refer back to that. This really does set this up. Luke put this together very carefully. And by the way, this dinner party goes beyond today. <laughs> There's actually the second half of the dinner party is next week. We just couldn't fit it all into one sermon, so we're just taking it in two pieces. So, so that's the situation. Now, Jesus has caused this issue by, by choosing to heal a man on the Sabbath. And then here's what he does with that. This is how to interpret what he has just taught. He says, now he told them a parable. He told a parable to those who were invited. When he noticed how they chose places of honor, saying to them, when you're invited by someone to a wedding feast, don't sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you uh, be invited by him. And, you and he who invited you both will come to you, say to you, give your place to this person. And you'll begin to be shamed by moving to the lowest place. So here's the picture. is You come into a feast, and what was probably going on in this, this dinner party was the guests would come in and they'd wash. Remember, we, cut, we talked about that earlier. Why don't your, your disciples wash their hands? It wasn't for germ control. It was because you want to wash the dirty world off of you. Get those Gentile germs off of you. So they would probably most likely come in and wash and then quickly hustle to get to the place of honor. Now, we don't have a whole bunch of detail on, on where the place of honor in the first century was. Uh, generally speaking, <clears throat> it would be up close to the host. You want to sit to the left or to the right of the host and at the head of the table and that kind of thing. So these leaders would come in and they would wash really quickly and then they'd hustle to try to get the, the place of honor to get up close by the front. And Jesus observed them doing that, and he warns them, that's a bad idea. Because what happens if you muscle your way up and you get to the place of honor, and then some very important person shows up a little bit late, and he comes sauntering in, and everybody knows him. You know, he washes his hands very dignified and walks to the front with his long flowing robes. And the host says, um, could you move? <laughs> Wouldn't that be embarrassing? Now you've got to get up in the middle of this dinner and walk all the way to the lowest place, and sit down. And that would really be embarrassing. As a matter of fact, he says it would shame you. There, there, you would begin to be shamed by this. Um, so don't do that. Instead, take the lowest place. And then when the host comes and he says, what are you doing down here? You're more honored than that. Come and sit up front. You, you'd, be ex you'd be exalted. You'd come up to the front. You'd be invited to the front. And wouldn't that feel, make you feel better? He says, he sums it up, he says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So is this how we should go to dinner parties? So you go to the restaurant, and you take the worst seat, and then hope somebody invites you up? It has immediate application in that, yeah, you should probably do that. You should probably not try to go to somebody's house and sit in the, the, the head of the table thinking that you're that important, and then the, guest, the, the host says, could you move? I, I was going to sit here so I could serve or, or something like that. But I think Jesus is talking about something bigger than that. I mean, that, that's possible. That's doable. If that's true, then he's really only addressing a social issue in the first century. I think there's something bigger than this. And here's the clue. is he says, when somebody invites you to a wedding feast, now what these folks were invited to was not a wedding feast. It was a dinner. This, this image of the wedding feast has to do with the coming of the kingdom of God. That, that's how that, that, uh, that picture has been used pretty consistently by Jesus so far, is this wedding feast is the kingdom of God coming in. And so what Jesus is telling us here is not just proper etiquette for the dinner table. He's showing us what it means to be a disciple of Christ, which is don't muscle your way to the front of the line and think that you got there. Don't, don't, 
push your way up because you're somebody important. Instead, seek the humble place and, and be exalted. Be raised up to where you belong. So that's, that's where to sit. Is What we should be doing is we should see ourselves not in the place of honor, the place of authority, but in a humble place. And, and then let Jesus put you where you belong. So you go to the wedding feast, and instead of taking your place, you let the bridegroom come and say, no, no, you, you need to sit up here. Come and join me at the head table. This is your place. Oh, there's the head table's full. You, you need to go down there. So what you're doing is you're humbling yourself to Jesus and saying, I'm going to let you assign me honor and dignity and place in your kingdom. I'm not going to take it for myself. Now, there's some question about this. It says he told them a parable. What do you think of when you think of parables? A story, right? There was a rich man who went to another country or something like that. That didn't happen here. And so some people say, oh, well, this was a mistake on Luke's part or this really wasn't a parable or um, don't read commentaries. <laughs> they will really mess you up. What parable means is para means alongside of. This is a teaching alongside of. So what he's doing is he's looking at the situation, healing the man, and he's watching them jockey for position, and now he's saying this to teach alongside that. So that's that clue that this actually ties back to that healing, is it is a parable to the healing. It's a teaching alongside the healing. We'll come back to that again in a minute. So I'm asking you to remember it for a long time, so maybe I should refresh it one more time um, after a breakfast like that. So the next thing that happens then is um, he, he then turns to the host. And he looks to the host and he says to him, when you give a dinner or a banquet, don't invite your friends, your brothers, your relatives, your rich neighbors, which is probably who he was surrounded with at that time, all the important people of the city. He says, don't do this again. But rather, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And you will be blessed because they can't repay you. If you invite your rich and powerful neighbors and you throw them a wonderful dinner, guess what? They're going to invite you back. And guess what you've got? That's it. You've been repaid in full. Instead, invite these other people, the poor, the lame, the crippled, the blind. Invite them because they can't repay you. And, and the reason they can't repay is because, remember, the economic situation of the first century was what you could produce was who you were. You couldn't get a job at a, at a car factory back then. You didn't get a job at a convenience store. You raised sheep, or you grew crops, or you made tents, or you wove, or you did something. So somebody who's blind and crippled and lame is not able to produce. They are at the bottom end of the economic ladder. Invite those. Why? Because they can't repay you. You will never be repaid by them for, what, for the kindness that you've extended to them. Well, why would I on earth would I do that? <laughs> What's the benefit of that? Jesus says, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. That's a pretty tremendous promise, isn't it? I'd like to be, I'd like to be repaid at the resurrection of the just. See, here's the thing is, is when we do this, when we invite people that are going to further our position, maybe they'll get us to promotion at work or make us look cooler in the neighborhood or whatever it is, we invite people because we think we're going to get something back from them. We, we get back and that's it. Deal's over. 
you get nothing. But to give freely to people who can never repay you, there's a tremendous blessing in that. It's not that you're making God your debtor or anything. It's that you are blessing somebody, and, and the blessing is just going to reside there. So when Jesus talks about the resurrection of the just, what, what's he getting at? Um, quick eschatology. Eschatology means the study of end times. Jesus is going to return. He's going to rule on the earth for a long time. The book of Revelation says a thousand years. I don't think you set your calendar by that and know when his reign is up. Uh, the way the book of Revelation uses those kind of numbers, it means a fullness of time, an appropriate long amount of time. So Jesus will return. When Jesus returns, according to Revelation um, 4, or Re I'm sorry, Revelation 20, the dead in him will rise. This is what it says in Revelation 24 through 6. When Jesus returns, they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. That's the resurrection of the just. Jesus returns, and those who have died in him are raised with him and reign with him. I can't imagine what that's going to be, look like. Can you imagine when Jesus returns, how many people will have died in him? There'll be more people resurrected than living on the earth, possibly, but we'll let him take care of that because he's really good at that kind of stuff. That's his, his job. So that's the resurrection of the just. And that's where Jesus raises his people, and that's where you receive your blessing. So invite the lame, the poor, the crippled, the blind. <coughs> And then don't expect anything back. You're looking toward that, that first coming of Christ where you'll be blessed. Now, there is a general resurrection after that as well. This is from a little further on in chapter 20. Um, this is Revelation 20, 13 through 15. So after that thousand years of his saints reigning with him, it says, and the sea gave up the dead that, who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So there's a resurrection of the just. There's Jesus' thousand years, long time reigning on the earth. And then there's a general resurrection where everybody is raised. And the, the righteous and the unrighteous are judged and sent to where they're going to go. So that's our little mini eschatology for the morning. Um, but that's what he's talking about. He's talking about being rewarded at that time. So how does all of this go back to the dinner party? Let's go back to the dinner party and what's going on there. The people who were mad at Jesus for healing at that dinner party, they would indeed have pulled their son or an ox out of a well. Jesus heals a man who's, who's sick, who's in pain, and they're upset about that. Now, there were some later, you know, maybe 100 or 200 years later, rabbinical writings about dropsy and what caused it. And mostly it was sin or uncleanliness would cause dropsy is what the rabbi said. So if that was present at Jesus' time, they're looking at this man not just as somebody who's sick, but he's a sinner. He, he's got this disease and he deserves it. He's unclean. There's something wrong with him. And Jesus says, because of that, you have taken him and you've put him below your son. And by the way, you've put him below an ox. So what he's saying with these two pictures of 
where to sit and who to invite, is he's saying there is a created order that God established, and you're not allowed to reorder that. So this poor man with dropsy, this man with these inflamed arms and legs, this distended stomach who's in suffering and pain is higher than your oxen. In in, uh, Genesis 1, God created man in his image and put him over all the animals of the field. What these folks are doing is they're saying, because this man has no utility for me, he is worse than the ox that I use to, to to plow my field. He is less important to me than the ox that is going to carry my goods to market for me. They have reordered the structure in which God has created human beings and put them below the animals. It's okay to rescue an ox, but it's not okay to heal a man. That's a terrible place to be in. And what that is, when we get down to its roots, that's spiritual pride. Because what you're saying is, Lord, your order is not good enough. I'm going to step in and reorder it according to me, according to what's useful to me. So that's what, what the root of this whole thing is really is pride. And that's why when they get to the, the dinner party, they're jockeying for position. They, they want to look good. Earlier, Jesus had gotten on them about, hey, these, these lawyers and these Pharisees, they wear their long robes, they t- say long prayers in the public places, they want respect and honor. That's all, the root of all of this is pride. So why are we getting to pride again? Why are we covering this one more time? Guess why? Because it keeps coming up. This is one of those roots that you have to keep whacking at to keep under control. Because human pride is really the root of all kinds of problems. So why does God hate pride so much? As a matter of fact, James puts it very bluntly. He says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So why does God hate pride so much that Jesus warned this person, basically, if you don't do this, you're going to miss out on the resurrection of the just? Why would he say that? Why does God feel that way? Well, the reason is because God is ultimate. God is the uncreated being. He didn't have anybody to start him. He created all of, the, all of nature, all of the heavens and the earth in order to show who he was. That's what it says in, in Psalm, one, uh, Psalm 19, right at the beginning. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky, above, the sky above proclaims his handiwork. So why is there a universe instead of not a universe? So that we could see God. So that we could see his, his glory, his, his unimaginable attributes can be displayed in all that we can see around us. That's what Paul is getting at in Romans chapter 1 when he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them, that is, those who, who deny him. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, where? In the things that have been made. So why does God hate pride? Because first and foremost, God is ultimate in all of creation. At the center of creation is God and his glory. So as we just exist, we're seeing, we're experiencing all of God's glory, his invisible attributes, his, his divine power, his nature, is written into the world. When we step in there and we say, I want to be the center of this universe, well, guess what? There's about a billion other people who want to be the center of the universe at the same time. And if we're all trying to be the center of the universe, what's going on at the center of the universe? Fighting, 
judging, jockeying for position. The center of the universe then becomes chaos. But if we're able to step back in humility and say, no, this is about God and put him in the center, there's peace and beauty, mercy and, and judgment, grace at the center of the universe instead of us. So why does God hate, hate um, pride? Because it tries to move him out of that position. We were created in order to enjoy him. We were created to delight in who he is. What pride does is instead of seeing that, pride supplants the seeing and delighting of God and his perfection and beauty with our own. I don't know about you, I'm not too thrilled by my beauty and perfection. It doesn't really get me up in the morning. It's, it's, it can never satisfy us then. Have you ever seen somebody who's really super proud? They can never be satisfied because something new comes along, something better, something somebody else has. Somebody didn't praise me the way I thought I should. They can never be satisfied, but when we're humble and we're satisfied in God, we can actually be satisfied. And it's okay if I have to sit a little further down the table. I'm not worried about that. If God's the center and we let him be the center, we can find actual joy. And this is what the psalmist is getting at. He says, you make known to me the paths of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the kind of person in Psalm 16 that puts God at the center and says, you are the most important thing here. That's humility. The way I define humility is understanding our position before God rightly. Understanding our position before God rightly. Not before other people, not before myself, but before God. The reason I go with that is because Jesus was humble. Philippians says he humbled himself and took on the form of a servant, even humbled to the, to the point of death. So Jesus is humble. So if I say it is recognizing my sinfulness before God, then it excludes Jesus from being humble. We can't have that. <laughs> he is the picture of humility. So for us, it would include our understanding of our sin, but it would be saying I am before God and God is the one who is, who is the one who's going to assess me correctly. So back to that dinner party. Do you begin to see what Jesus is observing here? The most perfect, humble man ever to walk the face of the earth, Jesus Christ comes into a dinner party and he watches people jockeying for position. The, the, the creator of the universe, the one who spoke the universe into being, all things were created through him and for him, walks into a dinner party and somebody's trying to get ahead of him in the seat of honor. Who thinks that of himself? Doesn't that begin to sound ridiculous? <laughs> to me, that just sounds like, what on earth are you thinking? <laughs> you really think you're that important? So now you can see why this would, would tweak Jesus, and he would say, you know what? This is a learning moment. You guys need to learn this. This is important. Don't do that. And don't throw a dinner party so that you can invite people who are going to do that. Rather, invite people who can't pay you back because they are equal to you, and that's a way to help combat pride. So how do we combat pride? Well, first of all, how do you know pride is in your own heart? How do you identify that? Typically, you would say, um, if I see somebody getting praised that I think I should get, then that could be pride. 
take a step back from that. If you think there is something that you deserve praise for, that's the, the problem. Even if nobody gets praised for it, that could be the issue of pride. That could be the root of pride in you. It, it can begin to start in you. It, just in that idea that, oh, I, I should have gotten that. They should have recognized. Why didn't they call me? Why didn't they say my name? And I don't know about you, but I feel that. <laughs> you know, you go on Facebook and see how many likes you got. Or did anybody respond, re- reply to my comment? Or, you know, has anybody said how great? That, that's pride. And it, let's face it, folks, it's just there. It just is. It, it, it just happens. It, it is the nature of the fall with pride. And so it's baked into us. So be aware of it. Be aware that you, that you have pride. Now, how do you fight it? If we all have it, if it all creeps up on us, um, how do we fight? Well, you know what? Come to think of it. One more little thing before we go into how to fight it. Often, people will think that those who have it are proud. The cool kids who get to sit at the cool table and in the lunchroom and the crowd that hangs around them and the people who are more powerful, influential in the city or wherever it is, and you look at them and you go, well, they, they have pride and I don't. So I'm down here at the bottom, and I'm, I'm more humble, and so I've, just got, I've got my friends. What you have done is instead of accepting their ladder of importance, is you've rejected their ladder and created your own. And it's upside down from theirs. And so you can look at them and judge them, and I'm not proud like them. This is how insidious pride is. It can happen when you're, when you're praised, when you're exalted, when people love you. It can happen when you're rejected and people no, don't notice you. There's a possibility of, that's how bad human pride is, is you can be proud that you're at the bottom of the rung of the ladder. So how do you fight it? What are we supposed to do about this? Jesus has given us a really clear call to fight against pride. Here's, here's some tips or some ways that I've, I've thought about fighting pride. First of all, recognize pride happens, right? It's a feeling. It wells up. You can't necessarily control your feelings. Pride will, will strike when you don't want it to strike, but you can't, you can't necessarily control that. What you can do is begin to hurt it, like hurting cats. When, when that pride begins to well up is recognize it for what it is and begin to steer it to where it belongs. So just because you have the feeling doesn't mean that you have to go with it. Your, your feelings don't control you. You can learn to shepherd them. You can learn to begin to direct them where they should be. So first of all, just because you felt the ting of pride doesn't mean you have to run with it. Second of all, I think you need to be really careful when diagnosing it because the desire to be great is not always wrong. Wait, what? This is what Jesus said in in Mark chapter 10. He says, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first must be slave of all. So the desire to be great, the desire to be first, is not necessarily wrong. Are you willing to take that second spot and go, okay, I want to be great in, let's say, in the church. Therefore, how do you fill in that blank? I'm going to serve everybody in the church. They're not even going to know I'm here. I want to be first. Therefore, I'm going to take care of everybody else first. So the desire to be great, the desire to be first, isn't necessarily wrong. It's just got to be too tailored and shepherded into the right position. So listen to what the Bible says about that. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Anybody want to be the best here? Got a list of things that need to be done. 
and nobody's ever going to find out about it. I'm here to help you. That's my job. That's how you become great. So what about those times when that's not enough? <laughs> I want to be recognized. I want to be known. I want people to thank me in the hallway. How do I fight that? Well, one of the greatest things you can do is memorize scripture. Scripture is the sword of God. It is the weapon that you need to have ready. And that's why you memorize it, so it's ready when you need it. So when, when pride begins to spring up, have some scriptures memorized that will remind you that you are created in God's image. And so is the person you're jealous of. You're essentially the same. Have some scriptures memorized that talk about God's surpassing glory. Remember in Job, for 20-something chapters, Job and his friends are debating why all this bad stuff has happened to God, or happened to him, and then God shows up. And what is God's answer to Job? Well, here's why. Where were you when I? Where were you when I? Where were you when I? What he did for Job at that point was humbled him and said, look, Job, you don't have all the answers. You're not necessarily going to get all the answers, but am I good? Am I trustworthy? So that's why to fight pride, you need scriptures handy to remind you of God's surpassing glory, to remind you why this universe is created the way it is and why you're placed in it so you can see and understand God and his glory better. And then just some scriptures on pride or humility. Have those handy to remind yourself, and we'll talk about some. Um, so that's the first step in it, is to recognize that it might be good pride, it might be bad pride, to have scriptures ready, and then understand that it's okay to not be perfect in that hum humility as you're fighting pride. You don't have to do it right, perfect, immediately. It's okay to fight. It's better to fight than to try to, to uh, admit it doesn't happen because the truth of the matter is you're a sinner saved by grace. So if you're fighting pride, you're a sinner. If you're fighting pride by turning to Christ, you're saved by grace. And so it's okay not to get it perfect right off the bat, but be wrestling with it. And then you need to confess that it is pride. And this is something I thought C.J. Mahaney was really helpful in. He's got this little book called Humility. Um, and it's very practical. And one of the things he says is, rather than confessing to God that I was proud in that situation and appealing to him for his forgiveness, instead say, Lord, in that moment, with that attitude and that action, I was contending for the supremacy that you have. And that's what it's all about. Forgive me. So one, it's a very subtle difference to say, Lord, I was proud in that, in in that moment. Please forgive me. It's better to root it in God and say, Lord, in that moment, I was contending for your supremacy. I was angling for the center of the universe, and I'm sorry. That belongs to you. I think there's more power in that second confession than that first one. The first one says, Lord, I was wrong. Please make me right. The second one says, Lord, you're right, and I was wrong. So consider how to, how to confess that and try to confess it well. And then here's some scriptures to remember God's promise to the humble, to, to, to incline you, to draw you towards humility. Isaiah 66, 1 through 2. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. How would you like to be the one that God looks to, the one that God seeks out? So imagine you're at the dinner party, right? You're at a dinner party. 
you got there late and the groups have already formed and you're kind of like awkward. I'm always awkward at dinner parties. And, and don't know who to talk to. And Jesus walks in the door, the most important person. And guess where he goes? He says his highs to the, 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 head, the, the host and heads right to you. He makes a beeline to you and he says, how are you doing? What's going on? And he, he makes a big deal out of you. How would you like to be that person? There's a way to do that. And Isaiah 66 says, this is the bigger context of that. He says, the Lord, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. All things my hand has made. And so all things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look. He was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So what would draw Jesus to you in that, in that dinner party? This tremendous promise of humility. The creator of the universe is seeking you out when you're humble. Let that promise ring in your heart for a while and see if that doesn't really stir in you a desire to actually be humble because I want God to pay attention to me. And he promised he would. First Peter gives us really helpful advice. He says, clothe yourself, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time, he may exalt you. How would you like God to come into that dinner party and say, here he is. This is the one I've been looking for. You humble yourself under his mighty arm, and at the proper time, not when you want it, but at the proper time, he will exalt you. That's a tremendous promise that you can hold on to. Can I wait for you, Lord? Can, can I hang on even to the resurrection of the just? Can I wait that long? Will that exalting by God be worth it? Yeah, I would say it is. And then even here, this, this passage that we're talking about in verses 10 and 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So hang on to some of those promises. Grab onto those, memorize those, have those ready. So when pride begins to stir in you, You've got weapons to go to war with it and say, I am not going to be proud in this situation. I'm going to delight in the fact that the coworker that I worked with who did all of, took all of my notes and, and did all, I'm going to be happy for them. I'm going to rejoice in them because I'm going to be humble in this situation. Why? Because, and here's the list of those promises. Hang on to those. And then finally, actually it should be at the front of the list, I suppose, is pray. Just pray. These are the kind of prayers that God delights to answer. Lord, would you breed in me a genuine, God-centered, Christ-oriented humility? That's the kind of answer you know, just based on the scriptures we heard, God loves to answer that kind of a prayer. Now, I've heard the joke before, don't pray for humility because God will humble you. Don't pray for patience because God will burn it into you. Pray for humility. It, it's worth it in the end. It may be a bitter road to get there because maybe that root of pride, you've nestled in your heart a little too long, but pray and ask God, would you lead me to true biblical humility? Would you help me understand my position before you rightly? Would you help me keep you at the center of the universe and not me and to see others in light of that? So this is our dinner party. This is, a, this is the dinner party we just enjoyed. Sit at the bottom of the table and let the... the, the host draw you up. Invite people who are never in a million years ever going to be able to pay you back to your dinner party. Invite them. Feed them. Bring, bring out your best food for them. Set out the, the good dinnerware for them. 
and don't count on ever having them invite you back. And why is that? It goes back to that picture of this man with dropsy who was struggling, who was aching, who hurt. All of his joints were probably inflamed. His flesh was tight. And Jesus comes and grabs him and heals him and releases him. He is an image bearer of God. He is worthy of God's attention. He is humble. He is not expecting much. And that's the one that Jesus sought out at the dinner party. That's the kind of person I want to be. I want to, that, that's the kind of disciple Jesus wants, is the one he's going to seek out like that. So why are we covering uh, pride and humility again? Because it keeps coming back up. There's a saying that Martin Luther, after the Reformation, he would be preaching on Sunday, and, and his parishioners would come to him and say, Dr. Luther, why are you preaching the gospel again? Didn't you preach it last Sunday? He goes, yes, I preach it again because you forget it every week. <laughs> why are we hearing pride again? Why are we listening? Why is Jesus, why is Luke through Jesus, or Jesus through Luke teaching us about pride again? Because you forget it every week. It, 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 is a, it is a pernicious foe that needs to be fought with all the tools that God has at our disposal. That's why we're covering pride again. Let's pray. Let's pray for humility. Lord, would you grant us humility? Father, what I saw in the other room at breakfast was a bunch of people who thought of each other as equally important. There was no jockeying for position. There was no um, uh, feeling of importance, of, uh, of entitlement uh, to seats of honor or, or terms of respect or opportunities to speak. Lord, it was a bunch of sinners who love you, who love each other, and who are humbled in your sight. And I thank you for a church like that. I pray that all the churches in the Antelope Valley would be like that, would be filled with people who seek you first, who desire to be right before you and who want to keep you at the center of the universe where you rightly and properly belong. But Lord, we know that that root will, will poke through again in different places at different times when we least expect it. And so Lord, I thank you that you've given us tools to fight pride. You've given us a clear warning to fight pride. And I pray that as a church body, we would continue to fight pride. Uh, we're enjoying so much harmony in this church, so much unity, um, Lord, that's your grace that's been given to us, and, and I don't want to take it for granted. So help us to remain people who are disciples of Christ, who pursue the good things first, who want to draw your attention not by our works and our good deeds and, and how cool we are, but by being humble in your sight. Lord, that is a precious gift, and we, we do thank you for that and pray that it continues. Lord, remind us through the week when we begin to forget when the root begins to grow again. We, did, we ask all of this for Jesus' sake, so that he would be glorious in our midst. Amen.